Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mike Lowes is joining me today, the military historian who's covered topics varying from Agincourt to feudal Japan. And today we're going to be talking about ancient horse archery. In particular, we're going to be looking at its importance for the ancient Near Eastern cultures, such as the Parthians, the Persians and the Assyrians. But we're also going to be looking at its importance for another culture, north of the Caspian Sea, north of the Black Sea, that dominated the Eurasian steppes. I am, of course, talking about the Scythians. Enjoy. Mike. It is an honour to have you on the podcast today. Always a pleasure, Tristan. Now, we are talking about a fascinating topic, ancient horse archery, and this is a subject very close to your heart. Yes, it is. It, 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 yeah, but not only is it something that I've written about you know, quite extensively, not least of all in my book, Warbows, but um, it, it's something that I still do and, and love. It is my passion in life. So let's start at the very beginning. Where do we think or do we know horse archery originates? That's actually a much harder question to answer than you might think. Um, And the answer is it probably originates in several places independently. It doesn't necessarily have to be one of these things that was invented in one place and then transmitted. So... uh, where it really starts is it starts with chariot archers. So before I put a date to it, let, let's get that sequence. It starts with chariot archery because early horses were very small. Zoologically, the horse is a very tiny animal and was gradually nurtured to size by man. Um, but chariots allowed you to use two tiny horses to pull a wheeled vehicle, whereas one of those individual horses was not yet strong enough to carry an armoured warrior. Um, By sort of 1500 BC, uh, 1400 BC, you start to see the occasional little image of of a sort of, you know, young teenage boy in a loincloth on a horse riding possibly as a messenger, but still not for armoured men. We have different types of horse, of course, in different regions. So the step pony, which is the kind of, you know, stocky big-headed thick-boned uh horse that we that we see today in in, uh, incarnated as the mongol horse um they were possibly more muscular and sturdier to take a single rider earlier so it probably started in the steppes with horses like that but in china where you have you know a similar kind of horse they they you know they started with the chariot Moving over to Asia Minor, um, of course, we think of chariots very much as, as as being the Egyptians and the Hittites and subsequently the Assyrians. Now, those cultures are using a different type of horse, um, more the sort of desert horse, more like the, the sort of Arab fine boned. So it may have taken a little longer for them to become you know, big enough to be riding horses. And certainly the chariot archer um, remained prominent in that region for much longer. So it's not until about 700 BC that we'd see the Assyrians making the switch from chariot archers to horse archers. And when they do, they, they make a very curious switch. For a chariot archer, you work with a driver. So you have somebody driving your chariot and you stand 
alongside them. Um, and you, you have, you know, on the battlefield, a similar mobility to the horse archer. You know, you gallop in, do a wheeling turn, shooting all the way in, shooting as you turn and shooting behind you on the way out or skirmishing in a sort of a dogfight with other chariots. But you're very reliant on the driver reading the battle, especially especially when you're in that dogfight situation, because you imagine, you know, some of those early battles where, where, where they, they talk about, you know, 10,000 chariots or so. In a desert landscape, imagine the dust just from the wheels and the horses' hooves. Of that. I mean, it must have been impenetrable. You, you, you wouldn't be able to see. Very similar, I think, to a sort of World War II dogfight between Spitfires and Messerschmitts and, you know, the enemy coming out of the sun or coming out of a cloud and suddenly they're on you without warning. Um, and I think some of those early chariot battles must have been very similar to that. And you're very dependent on your driver manoeuvring you into the right position to get an optimum shot. So what we see um, on those wonderful um, reliefs in the British Museum of the uh, sort of seventh century Assyrians is when they start to make the change, they have a pair of horses with the driver on one horse and the horse archer on the parallel horse. They're still riding as a horse team. And the driver has reached across with his left hand and he is holding the reins. He has control of the bridle of the left hand horse. The horse archer, just as he was on the chariot, is still a passenger. He's not actually riding his own horse. I did it once. It is the scariest, most unnerving thing I have ever done in my life. I uh, did it uh, uh, in Turkey, um, in uh, in the village of Haran, which in fact was is, is the site of Karai, one of the most uh, famous horse archery battles with the Parthians and the Romans, which I'm sure we'll come to, knowing you. Um, but um, the, uh, the, the that experience in this rock-strewn gully of having somebody else control your horse. It's, it's, it's just unnerving and it's no surprise that that didn't last very long um, and that they soon went to horse archers riding independently. But did it start there? Did it start with the Scythians? Probably with the Scythians um, a, a, a good deal earlier. Um, not least of all, because in that Black Sea region, they've got access to those stockier horses uh, and they were able to support the weight of a grown man rider earlier. That's amazing. So it sounds like there are two separate strands, as it were, to the origins of the horse archer and like north of the Caspian Black Sea and south of the Caspian and Black Sea. I think that's probably right. Um, you know, future archaeology may um, contradict that. We're, we're still, you know, glimpsing at shadows. But yeah, I think that's probably right. Okay, you mentioned Carrie, so let's go on to Carrie first before we go on to the Scythians. With Carrie, as you said, it's a famous battle of horse archers in the Eastern culture. Does that battle epitomise like horse archery success in the Near East during antiquity? In some ways. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic example of the advantages of horse archers on the battlefield. But I think we also need to make the distinction between battlefield horse archery and the tremendous advantage of having horse archers in an army for campaigns. Don't forget battles have always been a relatively small aspect of warfare. Campaigns are a much larger aspect. So scouting and tracking and ambushing and disrupting supply chains and all of that and raiding, that is a crucial part of warfare. It isn't just about the set piece battle. So for all those other functions, you don't really get a better troop than the horse archer. But what Kara shows us is on the set piece battlefield, they are also tremendous, especially when part of combined forces. And what we have uh, uh, is the combination of horse archers and heavy cavalry, cataphracts. 
So the cataphracts, the Parthian cataphracts, this is what well, the distinction between heavy cavalry and light cavalry is, is really to do with armor. Um, heavy cavalry are, are heavily armored, heavily protected and defended. That means they can have closer contact with the enemy. It means they can ride in to a massive enemy. It, it means they can be the, the hammer cracking the nut. Um, but once that nut is split open, then the horse archers can ride in and pick out the fruit. I'm rather overextending that metaphor, I think. Um, you get the idea. So, you know, Serena's generalship was brilliant because he had this legendary foe, the, the Roman army machine, with all its discipline. Um, one of the things it, it, it epitomizes is a difference in thinking between East and West. And we see it still today. It, 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 is, it has gone on throughout history. In the East, in the broadest sense of the word, you have the horse archer as the, you know, the, the most elite type of troop. But you also have, you know, javelin men and, and, and other light cavalry. They have a hit and run modus operandi. They, 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 they appear from nowhere, they engage and then they disappear and, and, and they've gone in a flurry of dust. They, they, they have mobility and fluidity. It's, it's, it's like fighting air. It's like trying to swat a fly. Um, in fact, uh, one of the highest orders of military merit in the Egyptian army was a golden fly. Um, sort of in tribute to that idea. You know, a fly can be the most annoying of creatures. It will land on your hand, you go to swat it, it's gone again, but it comes back again. And, and horse archers are very much like that. Whereas the Romans typify a Western style of warfare, which, which goes on to the, the Viking shield wall. It goes on to, you know, all the entrenchments and fortifications of the 17th and 18th century and into, in, in, into the um, First World War and beyond. It, it, it's the idea of defending a fixed position. And those are two very different military ideas and are the biggest contrast between East and West. So at Karai, we get this military philosophy put to the test. You, 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 you've got the Romans with their shield wall and testudo and their fixed possession and, 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 and all marching as one, and all, you know, a single unit acting as a homogenous um, creature. Um, being attacked by these independently minded, heroic, um, warriors with flair and flourish and tremendous skill riding their horses and, and, and shooting their bows. And of course, they can ride in, they can shoot their bows out of range of a peel and throw, and their arrows can sneak through and start to pick off a few men. And as a few fall, the Romans try and fill the gaps and, 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 and bring in men. But they're starting to fall and you, you concentrate on one area. It's starting to, to, to decimate a little bit by, by these harassing volleys from the horse archers. And then you send in your cataphracts. You've got a small hairline crack on, on the nut. And then you send in these heavy men to go thump and they smash into them. Um, they carried a, a, a kind of lance, a spear called a contest, which they used with two hands, and they, 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 they stab vertically down with enormously powerful stabs, stabbing down with that. They also couched it to, to, to run in for that first contact. Both of them, the horse archers and the cataphracti, are benefiting from a new technology. And that is the horned saddle, later adopted by the Romans. And it evolved from the Scythian saddle. I know we're going to come to them. But the horned saddle has four horns at each corner of it. That means it doesn't have any stirrups. Stirrups have not yet been invented. And they're really not, they have advantages, which we can come to, but they're really not necessary um, to either shoot a bow or charge with a lance. The horn saddle has two horns at the front, and the horse archer can lean into those, rising his seat just off the back of the horse so that he has not got the, the bouncing undulations of the horse at, at the moment of losing his bow. 
and the cataphracti has got the horns at the back which hold him in so he can deliver an impact charge crashing into the enemy without fear of being shot backwards off his horse. So the technology of that horn saddle assisted both the heavy and the light cavalry of Serena's army. And it was good generalship of saying where to hit and when to hit and which of those two troop types to use, using those combined forces intelligently that absolutely you know, caused havoc with that Roman, um, that Roman idea. It not only broke an army, it broke an idea that, you know, we can all stand strong together, not if we crack you apart. That's, that, that's fascinating. So it's, as you say, it's a combination of combined arms warfare with this mobility and fluidity, which, of course, the horse archers was such a key part of. Does this epitomise Eastern warfare for almost all of antiquity? Well, I think all of antiquity and, and beyond to the present day. Wow, that's remarkable. As you say, it's this, com- it's this complete contrast, as you said, with the Western idea, as you said, of, of heavier infantry and cavalry, but you say fighting together. Yes, it, it, absolutely. But the distinction is, is, is this Western idea of, of, of massing all your troops to defend a few square feet of ground. Um, you know, it, it, it reached its most absurd during the horrors of, of, of the First World War. But that idea has always been in there in Western warfare. And, you know, it's the idea of the shield wall or the Roman testuda and the legions and all of that. It's there. Whereas that fluidity of the East, of coming in and disappearing like a wind, um, has always been there. And, you know, I mean, it, it, we, we see it today uh, in, in the fight against terrorism. It, it's such a difficult enemy to engage. Mm. So, you know, it's very much in that thinking. And... With the Near Eastern cultures, obviously one of the most famous things with horse archery in antiquity, one of the most famous techniques was called the Parthian shot. But should that technique just be linked to the Parthians? Absolutely not. It was made famous by uh, Roman writers recording the notable defeat of their army at Cara. And Parthians obviously used it. But no, it's innate to being a horse archer that you can shoot in all four directions around your horse. So you need to be able to shoot forwards and you need to be able to shoot behind you. To have a horse and an expensive warrior, and they were the elite warriors of these cultures. The cultures that had horse archers, the horse archers were the elite aristocratic class of people. We have so much more primary source literature about horse archery and about the composite bow um, from these cultures because they were writing for a literate audience. You know, people who could read uh, would read books about this. We don't have any literature about the English longbow during the period when it was used in warfare. The first record we have of it being written is is by Elizabeth I's Latin tutor, Roger Ascombe, who wrote a, a work, Toxophilus, which is a very good work. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's writing it in the mid-16th century after the longbow has gone out of military use. But we have in China and in the Arab world um, and in the, in the Turkish and Ottoman world, we have an abundance of treaties from the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries talking about the use of horse archers and, and, and the use of the composite bow. So that's a signifier, uh, one of many, that these are elite troops. You know, they're highly, highly skilled and they're expensive because they're the elite people and they have to put horses, plural, into the field because your horse can get shot, so you always have to have a string of horses. You also have to have a string of horses on campaign, so you can keep changing horses, so uh, your, your, your horse doesn't tire, it's not too tired by the time he gets to the battle. So any horse archer's got to have four, five, six horses with him. So he's an expensive troop to field. So he needs to be able to deliver as many arrows as possible into the enemy. So... When that is in a, in a fixed battle situation, obviously, as he's riding in, he can shoot. 
he could get a shot off as he turns around. But you do, you're going to waste all that energy and expense if you're not shooting while you're riding away. Because you, as you ride away, you're covering the same distances. So if you start shooting at, at, at say, 40, 50 metres before you get to their front line, um, then you want to carry on shooting for that same distance as you ride away. Um, similarly, you need to be able to shoot ambidextrously. All the authorities, from China to Turkey to Iran, all of the ancient sources talk about the necessity of horse archers being ambidextrous because you need to be able to shoot either side of your horse, forward and back. You take the famous Mongol technique, the Tulmuga, which is like a sort of pincer movement, not, not coming around the sides, but coming to the front of an enemy. So imagine a, a straight enemy front line. And the Tulmuga had squadrons of horse archers, both on the right flank and the left flank. And they would ride in, shooting and crossing over. So they're both doing concentric loops that kind of overlap each other. So, so there is a constant flow of archers at the front line de de delivering arrows. Well, in order for that to happen, one of those squadrons has to be shooting left-handed. If the enemy is only one side of them and they're coming in from two sides, if you can picture that, one side has to be shooting left-handed. And then as it loops round, it'll be shooting round on the other side. So it has to switch to be able to shoot right-handed. So being ambidextrous and being able to shoot at all angles is innate to chariot archery, and it is innate to all horse archery. We have the word Parthian shot, which simply describes what one in ordinary language might call a back shot. Um, we have that word sort of in honor of the great success of the Parthians at Cari, but no, they did not originate it. Uh, the, the skill involved in something like that, for the Near Eastern nobility, would they have been raised from you know, a very young age to learn how to shoot a bow from horseback? Absolutely, absolutely. The, the parallels with European um, chivalrous um, upbringing are, 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 are direct. You know? so, so the Arabs had a thing called Furusia, and, and Furusia is very much like the code of chivalry, but, but it also, in, you know, so it has codes of honour within it, uh, codes of behaviour, codes of etiquette. And at the top of it, is the importance of specific martial skills, of which horsemanship is number one, um, or archery is number one. Um, uh, they, they, they're kind of joint number one. Uh, and the, but then you also have swordsmanship. And don't forget, the horse archer was never a single weapon warrior, because you know at some stage you may need to engage at close quarters. So almost, I think, well, certainly all horse archery cultures also carried a sword. Um, most, I think, if not all, carried a mace. Many carried javelins, um, a little case of three or six javelins um, for melee fighting, uh, which they could use either, you know, as a, as a short uh, stabbing weapon or to throw, at, you know, 10 metres, 20 metres, close, close range. Javelins were used a great deal by horse archers and some also carried lances. So they, they were always... Uh, a very versatile troop. And as I said earlier, you mustn't just think of their use for the fixed battle. Um, warfare is about campaigns and having troops that are versatile and mobile are invaluable, but they're no good on their own. It's no, you know, at Karai, if, if, if Serena had only had horse archers, they would have, you know, been a great annoyance to the Roman shield wall and Testudo, but they would unlikely to have broken through. You did need that hammer of a cataphractite to, to actually crack the nut open and expose the, the vulnerable nut within. Uh, then the horse archers could really exploit that. And the more they exploited it, the more the cataphractite could come in and so on and so forth. But just on its own, against a dense fortification, like a shield wall, horse archers have a limited annoyance factor, but have them ambush a supply train, have them um, frustrate 
troop movements when a general is trying to organize his men on the battlefield and they, they can't get them into position properly. They, they, it's their versatility that makes them so incredibly useful. Versatility indeed, and the importance, as you've just mentioned, of combined arms warfare. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Let's head north to the bigger brother of the Near Eastern horse archery civilizations, as it were. Who were the Scythians? Ah, the Scythians are most extraordinary people. And, and, and we're, we're learning so much more about them um, with, with, with recent archaeology. So they ended up spreading as far east and, and, and south as, as Iran and as far uh, east as China. Um, but they originated in the sort of um, Black Sea area and they were horse archers and horsemen and they were you know, nomadic warriors. Um, but it's the fact that they spread so much is not only a tribute to their military expertise, uh, um, it, it also shows that over time they changed as they merged with other populations, but taking their warfare tactics with them. So I think if you talk about early Scythians, you're talking about one set of people in a fairly confined locale. And you talk about later Scythians, you're really talking about something different because the spread on one level, you could say, has diluted the, 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 the core Scythian identity, but another way you could say it's just it simply ex expanded it. So by the time we get to Periclean Athens, uh, uh, where, where they're recruiting Scythians um, to uh, be the policemen of the city, we're probably talking about a, a, a slightly different people to those that you know Herodotus was writing about. Because you mentioned them slightly earlier when we were talking about the origins of horse archery and how there seems to be two different strands. Was it these early Scythians who developed horse archery north of the Black Sea? Yes, I think it was. There, there are various clues, um, and, and we really can't be certain, but it seems that they did. I would probably argue that the Scythians were the first. Um, and one of the curious things is the Scythian bow. We can't really know, did the Scythian bow come first or the angular bow come first? Um, they're both certainly extant um, by about sort of 1500 BC, possibly earlier. Well, certainly most certainly earlier. And they are so different. The angular bow is the one we see used by the Egyptians and the Hittites um, and the Assyrians uh, in, in, in their chariots. And it's so called because in its strong position, it just looks like a, a very geometric isosceles triangle. In its unstrung position, it's like a sort of flattened W and then you string it and it turns into a triangle and then you draw it 
and it metamorphizes into the most beautiful, perfect arc. It's, it's a strangely magical stick. But it's simple. Its lines are simple. Whereas the Scythian bow has the most convoluted curves and recurves and reflex and deflex. It, 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 it's wiggling all over the place. It, it, it looks like an angry snake. So the technology to build that is so sophisticated. We're very lucky that, that, that we actually have, you know, original archaeological artifacts of Scythian bows. So we know exactly how they were constructed. And they are this jigsaw puzzle. And so it's kind of curious that the most complicated type of bow was possibly the first. The most sophisticated type of bow was arguably the first of the family of composite bows. I should perhaps explain what we mean by a composite bow. So there are various, so do not confuse composite bow with compound bow. A compound bow is one of those ghastly modern contraptions with wheels on that allow you to hold it at full draw for about five minutes without straining. Um, and dismiss that. The composite bow is made of a composition of several different materials, as opposed to a self-bow, like an English longbow, which is made of a single material, i.e. in that case, wood. So a composite bow begins, however, with wood. It has a wooden core, a, wo a wooden skeleton, if you will. Now, because it's going to have other materials, horn, sinew, and glue attached to it, you are able to fashion that skeleton into a complex shape. So a self-bow, a wooden bow, like a long bow, is, is, is you know, just a, not quite straight, but just a gentle curve in one direction. Whereas a composite bow can exploit all sorts of mechanical advantages of geometry. So they joint, little fishtail joints, joining one piece to another, angling this and angling that, so you, you get these curly lines of composite bows. Obviously, if you, if you drew that, it, it, it would break, but it's reinforced. It's reinforced, first of all, with horn. So usually the, the, the horn of the water buffalo, although in the case of the Scythians, it may well have been ibex horn, and in fact, using the ibex horn um, may have been something that, that, that influenced that very curly shape. The horn not only reinforces that, um, is laminations of this horn glued, glued onto this wooden skeleton. Not only does it reinforce the, the um, skeleton, it gives it muscles. It's like attaching muscles to your own skeleton because horn, which is really pure carbon, is very good at compression. If you compress it, so it's on the inside, it's what we call the belly of the bow, the, the, the bit that's facing the archer. And as the bow bends, that compresses, obviously, as you, you, you bend that bit towards you, it compresses. And horn is very good at resisting compression and storing the energy from that compression. So it's, it's, it's the muscle, it's the spring that, 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 that drives the limbs back when you, when you let go of the neck. But if you just worked with that, the thing would still be too um, fragile and might break. So just like uh, you know, an animal body like ours or, or a deer or a buffalo, the skeleton and the muscles are operated by tendons. And so they use sinew to back the bow. Uh, sinew is the tendon of an animal, um, you know, the, uh, the hamstring of a deer or something like that. And when you dry it, and hammer it, put the stone on, 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 on a rock, hammer it out, you get this very, very fibrous material and you can pull it apart into fine strands. And each one of those has the most extraordinary tensile strength. You, you just can't pull a single strand apart with your hands. So they layer, layers and layers of this sinew um, on, on the back of the bow. And all of this depends on the real secret technology of this, which is glue. It's a bow that is glued together. And, and it has to be a glue that will not only hold 
these different materials together under tremendous forces, but also be pliant enough for the thing to be able to move and, 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 and the glue not to crack. So it's a very, very sophisticated glue. And the best glue for the job comes from the swim bladders of the sturgeon, which, of course, is a fish of the Black Sea. So it was that glue technology that enabled the composite bow. So we have all these different materials glued together. And they give you a very, very efficient bow. And by efficient, I mean the amount of power it takes, i.e. energy expended, to pull it back to full draw, compared to the velocity of the arrow, because obviously the velocity of the arrow directly affects its impact value. So with the composite bow, you have the spring um, potential of the different elements of it, the horn and the wood and the sinew. The, these all make for a very efficient spring and you have the geometry, these pre-stressed shapes that basically return it to position faster. A bow is a spring, and a composite bow is a more efficient spring. So, you know, for 50 kilos draw weight, um, you'll, you'll, you'll get more thump than you will for 50 kilos draw weight with a longbow. To get, to get an equivalent thump from your arrow, you would have to shoot a wooden bow of a much higher draw weight. That's remarkable how such a complex, powerful bow was possibly one of the earliest bows made by the Scythians. It is mind-boggling. It really is. No, it's extraordinary. Okay. And you see the cross-sections of them. I mean, when, I mean this, is, this is not something one can do on radio, but they are the most intricate jigsaw pattern of, of, of little bits of horn and little bits of wood and, the, 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 and the, you know, the slice, the cross-section. It... Well, there are pictures in my book, War Bows, um, and, uh, and, and, and there's a Japanese America, Jason Beaver, who, who, who makes the most beautiful replicas of, of, of obsidian bows. And in so doing, has pricked a number of the myths. So we've had a lot of misconceptions about them. Some of this came from their representation in art. So we very often in art see the Scythian bow represented as, as as quite small and this led people at one stage to think oh well they must have had short arrows and just had a very short little sort of you know kid at the fair ping kind of draw um and, and they can't have had very much draw you know draw weight they must have been like little toys really well this doesn't make any military sense at all for one of the greatest warrior civilizations in history and we know the dimensions of real Scythian bows because they have been found archaeologically, um, most famously at the Yanghai Cemetery in, in, in China. And Stephen Karpovitz made an exact copy of that bow, uh, and, and that was a powerful bow uh, that drew over 100 pounds, I think. And there, there are other Scythian bows that have been found, ones in, in, in a private collection, and, you know, they're over a metre um, tall. And the arrows that have been found um, with um, Scythian bows tend to be sort of 29 to 31 inches. And I'm sorry, I can't do the metric conversion of that. But uh, it's contrary to this myth that, that Scythian bows were tiny and lightweight and shot short arrows. Possibly one of the reasons of that myth is that there's a very iconic um, a little gold brooch in the British Museum with two Scythians back to back, and, and they've got these little tiny bows. And it may simply be a function of the medium of the art, that, 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 that the goldsmith was working in gold, and to have made the limbs of the bows any longer, they, they'd have just, because they're so tiny, so they, they'd have just broken with, with a puff of wind. Um, so it, 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 it may be that kind of function. It may be that the bow is, is uh, put there as an identifier, this chap's an archer, but that the weapon is not more important than the man. It may be an artistic convention that the most important person in this representation is the archer, 
and we've given him a bow to tell you he's an archer, but the bow's not the important bit. So there's all many arguments which I can't possibly answer or, or give an opinion, but, but, but reasons why art may mislead at times. But the reality is we do have archaeological finds of these bows, and certainly Jason Bieber has been making many Scythian bows, exact replicas, with exact same construction techniques in, in recent years, and, and, and he is pulling them to full draw, sort of 30 inches, 30, 31 inches, drawing behind the ear. So the bow will draw that far without snapping. And he's building them at you know, 120, 130 pounds draw weight. Again, I can't give you the metric equivalent of that, but archers still tend to talk in pounds draw weight. It's a mighty, mighty bow. Wow. And using that from horseback as well. I, that, that is another issue is, OK, we can think that they, the bow is capable of doing that. Would you be able to use that weight of bow on horseback? Probably not. And certainly probably not without stirrups. So a number of things arising from that thought. <laughs> One is, of course, the Scythians weren't exclusively horse archers. They did have infantry. And we see, you know, depictions of infantry. And they, and they have other weapons, too. Um, conspicuously, they had a, you know, a fairly long-handled pick um, that we see them fighting with and using with two hands. So, so they, you know, they did have an amount of infantry. And they're, they're very mobile, running around with, with, with their composite bows. Um, the other thought that comes from that is this idea of what kind of draw weight can you shoot from horseback. I, I cannot shoot a heavy bow. That's partly because I am now ancient and frail and partly because I have a broken scaphoid bone in my left wrist from, from, from a rebellious Turkish bow that turned inside out when I tried to string it one day. And it broke that bone and apparently I'm too old to have it fixed. But there we go. Um, so... I can't shoot heavy bows, and I have great admiration for those who do. But there are people who are shooting bows of phenomenal draw weight, you know, 140, 160. There, there, there are a few people who have been able to shoot bows of 200 pounds draw weight. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary. But I don't think they'd be able to do it from horseback. When you see these people shooting these heavy bows, the technique they're using is very similar to the technique of somebody lifting heavy weights down at the gym. They stand in a position with uh, their knees slightly bent and their pelvis tilted out. And you'll see this in medieval manuscripts. You look, the archers are standing there with their pelvises tilted out, just like a, a weightlifter at, at the gym. One of the things this does is it relieves the compression on your lower spine. But the other thing it does, and the, and, and the flex knees, is it recruits all the muscles in the body from your toes to, 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 to your biceps to lift that weight you're not you're not lifting a weight with your arms or just with your back or anything you're lifting it through your legs through your core through your back and everything and that's the same for shooting a heavy bow you need to be able to recruit all the muscles in the body and that is what stirrups offer the archer on a horse because with stirrups, you can assume that weightlifter position, transferring the weight down into the balls of your feet on the stirrup and do that. And I think that was the most significant consequence of stirrups. There were others. Uh, it, it became less tiring for the horse. Uh, it became less tiring for a, a person on a long journey. But really, there's nothing you can do on a horse that you can't do without stirrups that you can do with other than shoot heavier bows because of this ability to recruit all the muscles. Having said that, you can shoot a bow without stirrups. Obviously, in America, the Comanche and other Native American tribes were famed for their horse archery and shooting bareback. And the Scythians, they didn't shoot bareback, but they didn't have stirrups. They had a particular type of saddle. It was the forerunner of the Parthian forehorn saddle that we spoke of earlier. And I made a replica of one of these. And what it has, it, it's just a pad saddle. Um, and what it has is little padded bolsters at the front and back. And I have galloped my horse and found that even without stirrups, I can lean forward 
with my thighs onto those bolsters and by so doing lift my seat from the back of the horse. That gives me more stability in the shot because my knees are acting as shock absorbers uh, and I can feel where they're going rather than being bounced by the horse. And it, it, it gives you the optimum position to shoot. You are getting into that pelvic tilt position to do that. You just can't recruit all the muscles because you have no platform for the lower leg. From the knee up, you're still recruiting your whole body by swinging up into that position. You're, you're, you're engaging your core, you're engaging your quads, you're putting most of your body into the draw of the bow. So I think the Scythians would be able, and you know, they would be young and strong, uh, and that counts for a lot too. So I'm sure they could shoot bows of, of between 80 and 100 pounds from their horses, but possibly not the sort of 120, uh, 140-pound bows that perhaps some of the um, Qing uh, archers in, in, in sort of 18th century China were able to do. Um, but by, and, and we have accounts of that, that they were able to do that. So, so it, it's this combination of is around about 100-pound Scythian bow and this iconic saddle that helps are they key components that make the Scythians such superlative horse archers yes exactly that they are components and it was you know, it was a number of things coming together at the same time so it was this phenomenal technology of this powerful relatively short bow very suitable for use on a horse it was the saddle that enabled you to get into a position on the horse that was optimum for shooting a bow uh, and supported you when, when you went into the different positions. You know, one thing riding bareback, but leaning forward to draw a bow and then twisting from the waist to, to shoot behind you. It, it just gave you that little extra bit of support. The saddle was also beneficial for the horse. Um, prior to that, a, a simple pad saddle is what it says. It's a pad. Uh, and you put a pad on a horse's back and you sit on it. Well, you get some cushioning. The horse gets a little bit of cushioning. But basically, your weight is still bearing down on the vertebrae of its spine. One of the great things about the Scythian saddle is it had a, a sort of proto-gullet. Uh, in other words, it was two pads joined by a strip of leather. Um, so the two pads sat either side of the spine. And so your seat and your, 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 your you know, sort of inner thighs sat on this. So you weren't actually putting weight on the actual vertebrae. It was, it was just either side of it. So that was greatly alleviating for the horse, which gave him more stamina and it, you know, enabled the horse to go faster and, 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 and with, with more dash and panache. It's, it's a small thing, but it was all part of a combination of things. And it was the fact that they were also, that they carried swords and they carried spears and they were a versatile troop. Indeed. You mentioned earlier, we talked about the Scythian bow and you mentioned how they had that, that iconic pick-like secondary weapon and various other melee weapons. What about the, the arrows that, that they shot from the bows? What do we know about Scythian arrows? Were they iconic in any way? Absolutely, they were. And I, I mean, you know, one of my favourite quotes from, from history is, is Ovid talking about the Sarmatians, who, who were really the successors to the Scythians, but, but, but we're not, we're not, was exiled and, and, and was hanging around. In, in, in the Black Sea area, he, he talked about the Sarmatian horse archers and, and, and he described their arrows as um, yellow nebbed and vile with venom. It's just wonderful. And by yellow nebbed, he means they had bronze points. Um, so they had bronze tipped and, and vile with venom as, as they were poisoned. Um, and of course, Herodotus tells us that the Scythians used Scythicon, which was a poison. Uh, and, and, and he goes into great detail to how it was made. I can't remember exactly, but it, you, you, you kind of catch a few vipers and, and, and extract the venom from them. But then you also let the vipers um, putrefy and you sort of mix them with urine and feces and various other disgusting things. And you make a kind of a mash of it all and then tip the, the, the venom you extracted into that and, and mix it all up. So 
they did make use of poison arrows. And the great advantage of poison arrows is, is that there's two advantages of poison arrows. One is you win the psychological war before you've even engaged the enemy. Because as we all know, you know, we, you, you and I are, are having this chat at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. And it's the disease, poison, those things, they're, they're, they're frightening foes because we, we don't know how to fight them. You know, most of us would rather, you know, get hand to hand with an enemy. And, 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 and so poison, you know, it's a terrifying thing. You know, people say, oh, I don't mind being wounded, but God's sake, don't poison me. People, you know, a brave warrior will take an arrow shot, but he doesn't want to be poisoned. So you win a psychological war. But you also, you know, have effect for less penetration. It only needs to prick the skin. Um, and, and it's done the job. Um, we see lots of different Scythian arrow heads. Very often they have a little barb on them, which of course is exactly what you need for a poison arrow because it, you, they, they can't pull it out. It hangs in there to deliver its venom, like the bite of a snake. Uh, we see on some Scythian arrowheads, Scythian arrow shafts that have been discovered, um, that they are painted and decorated. Obviously, there's many reasons to paint and decorate them, and, and high-status warriors have, have always been keen on ornament and display. But the decorations are uh, with these kind of zigzag snake-like patterns, snake markings patterns, make me wonder if the different colouring and the different patterning on these arrows may have indicated different poisons or some arrows that were poisoned and some that were not poisoned that you could select from your quiver. Another interesting aspect of Scythian arrows is the fact that a lot of the arrowheads to be found are tiny. And this is one of the things that led to the idea that the Scythians must have had weak bows using little tiny arrows. As we've said, this makes no sense with the archaeological finds, nor does it make any military sense. So how could these tiny arrowheads be used? And the answer is probably with a foreshaft. So that is a, an arrow shaft that ha has you know, a main shaft and then an extension for the last sort of 10 centimetres or so, 10, 15 centimetres or so that, that, that plugs in. The main shaft has to have a spine. Spine's a term that archers used, it really means whippiness. So you have to have the right sort of whippiness for the poundage of the bow you're using. If you've got a very heavy bow and the arrow's too bendy, too whippy, it'll kind of turn the corner as it comes out of the bow and, 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 and wiggle. Um, if, the, if the arrow is too stiff for a lightweight bow, again, it won't fly true. It's a very dynamic thing, an arrow flight, and it has to ha have a match point. So you have to have the main shaft appropriate to the poundage of the bow. But you can put a little extension on the front of that, a foreshaft, and use this little tiny point. This comes with a number of advantages. It comes with the advantage that retrieved arrows, uh, there's a lot of work in an arrow, um, getting it straight, uh, you know, bending it, holding it over heat and straightening the wood, shaving it down, making it perfectly cylindrical or, or barreled or shaped, carving the, the notch, the knock in the top, putting the feathers on, binding them on with, with sinew, a lot of work in an arrow. So any that could be retrieved, especially if, they, if, if they've hit the ground or if they're sticking in a horse or if they're sticking in an opponent, when you go to retrieve them, you'll almost certainly break the end off. The advantage with a foreshaft is you've still got the main bit and you only have to replace the foreshaft. Another advantage is in terms of penetration, you've got the weight and, and, and the stiffness of the arrow for shooting, but you've got a, a thinner bit for penetrating. So if you can get through whatever outer covering is there, then you've got less resistance for the thing to needle its way into the target. There is some evidence um, that among the arrows that have been found, um, I've seen at least two that have a, a little spigot, little dowel spigot on the end, which suggests that they uh, are foreshafts that would 
plug in to a hole in a main shaft. So yes, Scythian arrows, a lot of them used with poison on barbed arrow tips cast in bronze. Um, a lot of them on four shafts plugged into arrows, arrows possibly color-coded to say which are poisoned or what the poison is. Uh, again, hugely sophisticated. You took the words right out of my mouth just then. Um, stingrays, vipers, the step horse, they're really using like exotic animals, maybe, maybe to say, to create these arrows, to create this bow. And all these things together, as you say, the components they form, they explain why the Scythians become such great horse archers. Absolutely. And as you, as you say, they, they're drawing this all from the natural world. Um, I think they observed the natural world keenly and, you know, and were in touch with it in a way that we no longer are. Um, finally, then, you did mention earlier, just a bit earlier, the Sarmatians and how they were successors to the Scythians. Obviously, the Scythians don't last forever. What does happen to Scythian horse archery and that way of warfare? Does it continue? And very much so. Everywhere the Scythians went, we have, you know, our horse archery cultures. I don't think we can absolutely say that the Scythians took it there. I think it may have developed independently in a lot of these places as well. Um, but yeah, it is the, the universal elite style of warfare in the Near East and the East. It, 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 it's ubiquitous. Yeah, so in the, in the steppes and the Near East, that's where it's like the noble way of the warrior. Well, and in China and in the Far East. Wow. And, and, and the samurai. Uh, the risk of uh, doing too much plugging of a book. But in my book, War Bows, there, there, there is a whole section on the Yumi, the Japanese bow. And everybody thinks of, of, of the samurai and the katana and, and, and the swordsmanship and, 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 and all the modern fashionable martial arts that come out of that. But... In the age before 1603, samurai warfare was horse archery. Samurai were first and foremost horse archers. Samurai battles were horse archery battles. The sword was a sidearm. And, and, and the Chinese, the, the Tang Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty, in China it stayed longer and later than anywhere else in the Qing Dynasty. You know, we're, we're going into the early 19th century and the Qing, although they had matchlock muskets, the elite troops are still horse archers. Wow. And that I, I was mean, partly an identity thing. Uh, I, I, the, the Manchu, you know, came from a horse archery culture and it was part of them projecting their ancestral uh, identity. Uh, but, but the Qing period in China placed tremendous emphasis um, not just on horse archery, but on archery in general. And uh, one of my favourite things about them, of course, is they did also have ice skating archers that they deployed along the frozen rivers in winter. No way. Yes, that, that's using that, that same idea of fluidity and movement and, 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 and getting to an enemy quickly and, and, and striking a trouble spot. Oh, that, that's amazing. And you're telling me then that these Hollywood images that we're getting, you know, today with the katana wielding samurai and all that, that's not completely true. It is not completely true. I mean, it's not, it's not without truth. I mean, the katana was a, 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 a highly important weapon and was used. But the samurai stopped fighting in 1603. Battle of Sekigahara, 1603. And, and, and then you get the Tokugawa uh, shogunate and it closes itself off to the world and, and, and becomes introspective and reflective. And that's where it, why it, it, it develops a, a stylized form of all its martial arts there. But up until then, and, and particularly in the early 13th and 14th and, and, and 15th centuries, the samurai were horse archers. That's what they were. The primary martial art was horse archery, as it was in China, as it was in Iran, as it was in Mughal, India, as it was in the Arab world, as it was uh, in, in the Ottoman world. Wow, that's remarkable. It's a massive, massive culture. More of the world, <laughs> more of the Northern Hemisphere did it than didn't. In a strange way, the half dozen countries of Western Europe that stuck with the longbow are really the minority. Um, and it was a class thing. 
It was just a different class of warrior. Was used as archers in the West as they were in the East. Well, fortunately for our listeners who want to learn more about warbows, they have the perfect book to go and read, which is, Mike? It's called Warbows. It's a lovely publication and it, it has um, a full section on the English longbow and, and, and lots to say about that. It has a full section on the crossbow, which is a very underrated and overlooked but very important uh, weapon um, and a big section on the composite bow and a big section on the Japanese bow. One of the reasons I enjoyed writing that book so much was was, was, was what I love about history is, is when we get into comparative study. And, and it, it, you know, we can have an interest in a thing, like for me, archery. And, uh, and, and it, 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 it's a travel guide that takes you all over the world to all these different cultures. And it's full of surprises. That is absolutely true. Dude, we've got to get you back on for one on the uh, ancient crossbow, I'm absolutely sure. Mike Lodes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Tristan. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.